Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is October 20th, 2020. In this episode, we will be focusing on cyber. Our featured geopolitical expert is Lieutenant General Vincent Stewart. Lieutenant General Stewart served the United States Marine Corps for over 35 years. He most recently served as Deputy Commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Prior to this assignment, Lieutenant General Stewart served as the 20th Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Other contributors to this podcast are Peter Chur, our macro strategist, and Rachel Washburn, our geopolitical associate. For a discussion on all things cyber, I'm going to turn it over to Rachel to start the conversation. General Stewart, in order to lay the framework for the discussion before we get into any real specific topics, can you just discuss how in the last 5, 10, 15 years, cyber risk has evolved um, and also how policy has evolved to address this risk, uh, given your role as the former deputy commander of U.S. Cyber Command and the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. I imagine you have some uh, really unique insights on how policy has changed to address the evolving risks. So let me, let me start this way. Uh, we, we generally use the term cyber very cavalierly. And so for me, cyber is a range of things from building and maintaining resilient networks on one end to being destructive of those networks on the other end and a whole bunch of stuff in, be- in between. And so oftentimes people think about cyber, they think about the network, but the reality is in cyberspace, the real key is the data that resides across the network. The things that you can do with that data, whether you uh, uh, use that data for deception, you use that data for destruction, uh, you use that data as denial of operating in, in any environment. But the data is all of our data. So, uh, you know, it's the uh, Willie Horton thing. Why, why do the cyber actors go into this space? Because that's where the data is. Whether that data is your health record, your personal uh, records, uh, intellectual property, uh, in, any number of data sources. And so far more important uh, uh, to, to me, and it's, it's, I have to be very careful because it's all a part of an ecosystem, it is how do you understand as an organization or as an individual where your data is and how it can best be used? How, does it, how is it used for decision making? How is it used for, uh, uh, one, of, one of the great um, challenges we face today is ransomware. What do they do with the, in a ransomware environment? They lock the computer and they ask you to pay in Bitcoin in order to get the data back. They're not at all interested in destroying the network. They're interested in that data. Uh, the same thing for extortion, where if you're doing something online that uh, a, a criminal would, not, would believe that you would not want to uh, be made available to your friends, your colleagues, your, your employer, then they'll do the same thing. They'll tease you with uh, some data that says, here's what we see you doing online. Uh, send us some Bitcoin, and if you send us some Bitcoin, we will uh, release that data, or at least not release it to, to the broader audience. So the real key, and I think one of the things that we miss in uh, this range of things that you do in cyber, from building resilient network to uh, destroying network, is we miss the fact that uh, the data is really what this is all about. And this is what our nation states go after, uh, whether it's uh, China and theft of intellectual property, 
or to hold at-risk uh, infrastructure. Um, the, 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 even in the infrastructure, it's about the data, the ones and zeros that move across the network. Uh, the most capable of uh, these uh, nation states, uh, we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, uh, Russia, China, Iran, uh, to an extent uh, North Korea, uh, are, are the big ones. Um, so the, the first thing we've got to do is uh, make sure we understand that uh, there's a range of things that happen in this domain we call cyber, and uh, that we are mindful of how we provide services uh, to counter that. Uh, since it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, I'll tell you that I tell uh, all of us that we are part of the attack surface. So all of us have some smart device that can connect to the internet that can give access to an adversary. And so uh, everybody is part of uh, this uh, competition in cyberspace, all part of the attack surface. And so you've got to do at least three things, and these three things are personal, individual things that should be done, as well as corporate things that should be done. You've got to have a good antivirus uh, malware detection and mitigation uh, uh, software. Uh, you won't be able to see uh, malware on your own, so unless you have a very capable malware uh, detection and mitigation, uh, you're at great risk. Second thing you've got to do is make sure that your operating systems are up to date. Operating systems, uh, when they're updated, are generally because it makes the system stable, but it also is because there are vulnerabilities that have been identified uh, and need to be uh, corrected. And then the third thing is uh, good passwords. Uh, it is stunning that uh, probably over the last year or so, uh, the number one password consistently has been password. And some people get really clever and they put password uppercase P, password uh, 1234. But as a brute force hacker, those are the first ones you go after. So you've got to make sure you've got uh, a, a strong password. Uh, what I tell folks now, it really doesn't matter if it's uppercase, lowercase, uh, numbers, etc. It's the length of the password that makes it harder to, uh, 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 to break into. So the longer the password, hopefully it's not uh, something unique to you. It can't be Vince Stewart was born on XYZ, uh, because I'll try that first. But if you make uh, uh, a random set of uh, letters and numbers and it's long enough, uh, that's usually pretty good. So at, for both corporations and individuals, those are the three minimum things you should do in order to protect yourself in this environment. And I'll stop there, I think, uh, as we go into uh, the capabilities of some of our potential adversaries. General Stewart, one question I'd love to ask you at this is, we saw a big push to work from home in response to pandemic. And now we're seeing companies talk about instilling a work from home mentality more permanently. How well thought out is that versus cyber? What does that do for the cyber? To me on the surface, it would seem that it exposes us to more risk. So it absolutely exposes uh, to greater risk as you've now expanded your attack surface. So, uh, you know, I, I can build firewalls and I can build things that will protect uh, a building. Now I have uh, a thousand uh, networks that I've got to defend with uh, 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 virtual private networks. And I've got to make sure that the folks at home are doing all of the right things to protect uh, the network, that they may get uh, um, careless when they're at home. Uh, you created uh, more opportunities to find a weak link if I am a determined actor going after company X. Uh, 
so yes, it has made things uh, much more vulnerable. It has increased the risk. Uh, it's increased uh, the risk because you have a greater attack surface. And seeing the, the, other, the other risk factor is uh, the greatest threat uh, vector for any organization is the insider uh, threat, whether that's a malicious uh, insider threat or a careless uh, uh, insider threat. By careless, I mean we teach everyone not to click on uh, links that they are not familiar with. Uh, and I still believe I could put in the subject line, do not click on a link on this link, and probably 4% of uh, folks will click on the link just out of giggles. Uh, and so it, uh, 73, I think the numbers in the 70 percentile range uh, where companies were breached uh, was a result of an insider activity, uh, some malicious, some just careless. General Stewart, can you discuss how you view how uh, U.S. corporations are prepared, especially as it relates to the public sector, whether that's municipalities um, or utilities? Actually, I've, I've seen uh, a, a lot more progress than I anticipated at the municipal level. Uh, I think uh, part of this progress is a, um, an increase in awareness I think if you had asked me this question four years or so ago, I would, I would say that, yes, uh, we, uh, uh, municipalities and corporations understand that there's a threat. It's ranked high among CEOs. It's ranked high on, on, uh, on uh, the municipality governance uh, sector. But the investment wasn't there. And part of the reason the investment wasn't there is that they didn't always uh, on, on one level, they, they got it, but they just didn't believe. They didn't push the I believe button. The more that we've seen uh, things that have occurred in like uh, the city of Baltimore that had all their data locked as part of a ransomware effort, and uh, the cost associated with uh, Baltimore rebuilding their, uh, their network, uh, I think the ransomware was in the 500,000 uh, range is what they wanted. And it cost, uh, the last time I looked at it, it already cost uh, the city of Baltimore $20 million uh, to rebuild their enterprise. So it went from the theoretical to the, the, the real practical, this is what could happen. Uh, and so you're now seeing increasing uh, investment, uh, both at the corporate level and at, uh, at the municipality level. You're also seeing increased trust in, uh, in uh, increased trust in our government in sharing and participating and interacting uh, at multiple levels. Um, I don't know that the trust was there four or five years ago. Uh, as we've seen more and more, um, as we've seen more and more incidents, incident occur, uh, and the cost of uh, mitigating and building back your system uh, and the interaction between our government and private sector, I think you're, we're, we're in a much better place today than we were four or five years ago. Uh, I guess the only other uh, piece is the, uh, the, the threat to our election system. Uh, that has gotten lots of people's attention, uh, concerned about our democracy, and so you're seeing greater investment and greater uh, cooperation in that space. I've always said that uh, we won't win this uh, contest against any adversary if we have point defense where uh, a, 
a, a local municipality is taking on a Russian activity. So it's got to be a great public-private partnership that brings in the right government entities with the right insights, with the right tools, and you only get there if you're uh, interacting on a regular basis so you can build that trust. Before we jump into the more um, broad discussion on how nation states are interacting in this um, in cyber threats, since you brought it up, um, we spoke to General Hernandez a few weeks ago, and he, you know, mentioned how election security is now uh, considered critical infrastructure and um, kind of managed, and the risk is assessed as such. Uh, what is your view on, you know, as we're head, we're three Tuesdays away from the election? Um, what is your view uh, on on how the threat, how we should perceive the threat to this election, um, whether that's you know from an information perspective and the way that we use the cyber domain um, or our adversaries may use the cyber domain to impact um, our trust in our election, or whether that be like a, a physical threat um, to the system. So I, I'm I'm not as worried about the physical threat uh, because that's um, too escalatory, uh, but I am concerned that all of our adversaries have learned that we are a very divided uh, country, and so in using this domain, they're using it uh, for information operations, deception operations, uh, and they are taking any divisive issue we have in this country and amplifying those, uh, those issues. So uh, they're putting bots in place that will uh, generate thousands of messages that uh, speak to a, a divisive issue so that they're working the, the, the mind. Even before you go into the, uh, the, the booth to vote, uh, you've been shaped by this disinformation uh, environment that our adversaries are, uh, are, are getting really good at. And we often point to the Russians as uh, the ones who are big on disinformation but uh, just by volume, you know, China has got a, a 1.4 billion population. They can probably set aside 100 million people, uh, but they don't have to because they can use bots and trolls in order to amplify the message. So uh, China is prolific in sending out the, that disinformation. Uh, Russia is very uh, strong in this space, obviously, uh, probably first to market, uh, has always had a uh, deception and disinformation effort. It's, it's part of their uh, uh, long-term strategy. So that's where we're seeing uh, uh, the domain being used, is to shape the mind, divide the country, and be as disruptive in that division of our country as possible. And I think, uh, uh, again, both China and Russia, uh, to a lesser extent, Iran, uh, they're all very comfortable in that space because they're, they're, they don't have to make content. Uh, we generally give them the content and they just uh, re-amplify it across the domain. So disinformation is the, uh, is the coin of the realm, uh, and it is used extensively by both China and Russia. Uh, yes, they have capability that they could be physically disruptive, uh, but uh, based on the last things that I've seen, that, that's not where their focus of effort is. And, uh, and oh, by the way, again, going back, uh, our relationship now with states uh, municipalities, tribes, has greatly increased uh, because we're interacting with them and we're uh, moving data a, in a more timely manner and they're able to use the data that we uh, generate at the national level, uh, pass through uh, uh, DHS, 
through CISA uh, has been very valuable in building the trust and the partnership with, uh, with state and local government. We learned an awful lot in 2016. We learned who the players were, their approaches, uh, and, and then uh, as a result of what we learned in 2016, uh, we could in fact uh, implement uh, uh, the strategy of defending forward and persistent engagement uh, to make it very difficult in 2018 for the disinformation effort to progress. I think we've probably learned more again over the last two years, and uh, I would argue that we are from a national level all the way down to the local tribal level. We're in a much better place to counter uh, any physical disruption. Uh, the question is, do we have a strategy, a national strategy, to counter the disinformation effort? Uh, and I think my answer is probably no. Are you able to discuss any of that forward-leaning effort? I, I, I would only go so far as to say that um, uh, we got legislation in 2017, I think it was, that allowed uh, us to do traditional military activities which means that we could do the things that will shape in, an, in, a in, in a particular environment, but certainly in this cyberspace environment. So giving us the authorities in the NDAA to do traditional military activities, uh, uh, like I said, allows us to, to do the reconnaissance, do the preparation of the battle space, and be in a much, more, a much better position to counter activities. And, and that's probably all I can give you. General Stewart. Given this potential for interference with data in the past and the ongoing battle of data, do you see the potential for changes in how information sharing platforms are regulated? Will we see more things like the U.S. versus TikTok? I, 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 I don't know if, um, I think, I, I can't imagine how we're going to regulate that except on uh, some of those areas of uh, personal identification uh, info and, and uh, HIPAA-type uh, protections. Uh, but everybody else, corporations, are going to have to think their way through how do they uh, secure that data both in motion and at rest. But those uh, PII uh, things, I think you're going to see probably increased attention to how we protect personally identifiable information. Of course, Peter, just to go back real quickly, it, it's amazing how many forms I get that asks for my social security number and I, they don't require that I send it secure. And that used to be a time when I'd go, oh, no way in heck I'm going to send my social security number. But uh, I, the, the other thing that we're learning now is your phone number is probably as valuable as your social security number. You, we generally take our phone numbers with us uh, whenever we move or we try to keep the same phone number and it has some unique identifiers in there. and. Uh, and, and that's becoming just as valuable as a social security number. I'd like to move on to the more geopolitical element of this discussion. Cyber threats and cyber warfare, it's really unique in that it's a space and a mechanism where our adversaries can operate and frankly attack the United States, domestic interests, private corporations, and yet not face the same type of retribution that they would should they conduct a more traditional and kinetic attack. General Stewart, can you discuss really where our adversaries um, have strengths in this space, uh, what, what they're good at, maybe where we see strong competition, whether that be quantum computing, 
um, or AI and really lay the framework for um, how our adversaries like to operate in the space and, you know, what are identifying elements of their tactics. So as, as we think about um, great power competition, I, I like to uh, break it down into my five R's. Uh, and the five R's all have a cyber capability. So I usually start by talking about uh, a rising China. Uh, rising China, uh, Xi uh, actually calls it a rejuvenated uh, nation with a long um, run, runway. So when we, uh, and what I mean by that is we think in terms of uh, the next administration, China thinks in terms of the next 100 years. And in the next uh, uh, 20 years or so, Xi has expressed the desire to be number one in artificial intelligence, number one in quantum, number one in cyber. Uh, and so we are competing in those future areas that, uh, particularly in quantum, and I, I, I won't even claim to understand all of quantum, uh, but uh, the processing power that comes from quantum that allows you to encrypt, or more importantly, decrypt uh, data is a significant race that the winner of that uh, really takes a high ground going forward. In, in cyberspace, uh, what uh, China's done, they've got uh, what's called informationalized warfare, and they've built capabilities, not just the doctrine for this uh, 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 space, uh, but they've also built forces organized to be able to do everything from strategic through tactical cyber operations. Uh, they've not only done that, uh, so they've done the doctrine, uh, they've built the forces, they've employed the forces, so they've showed their willingness to use that capability. The, the way we generally hear about the use of that capability is the theft of intellectual property. So China is very comfortable with having uh, the United States or Western powers or whoever uh, apply their uh, uh, research and development uh, capabilities and resources to design the best things. And then China rolls in in this domain and steals that, uh, that uh, research and development effort. So they're leveraging the West uh, to, to develop and then they steal it at a number of places because we have been absolutely careless about how we protect the data. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I always argue with folks that uh, good on China because they can steal the data, bad on us because we didn't think highly enough of the data and put all the right protocols to protect the data. So we've seen them use uh, uh, this space to, uh, to, to gather research and development, gather intellectual property. I was trying to think earlier if we've seen China use that against an adversary in a, uh, uh, in, in, in a more destructive way. I, I can't think of that. I can't think of an incident, uh, but I certainly can think of uh, China doing reconnaissance against our critical infrastructure, reconnaissance that may look uh, relatively benign but could be weaponized at, at some point. So there are some risks as we look at our critical infrastructure, uh, how we transition from uh, this is just interesting reconnaissance, uh, pretty benign, to weaponizing those reconnaissance tools and being destructive. Bottom line, I think uh, China would like to be able to hold at risk our critical infrastructure, 
because that allows uh, China to, to win without fighting. And, uh, and this could be a great non-kinetic way to demonstrate that uh, they have a decisive position and any action on our part would be catastrophic uh, because of the position they're in. So China, uh, going from the top, has uh, strategic guidance on being dominant in, uh, in cybersecurity, have written doctrine, have organized forces, have tested those capabilities, have used those capabilities, and do sit at uh, some of the critical juncture in our uh, infrastructure that uh, they could hold at risk. And I'll stop there on China unless you have questions you want to uh, dig into. Where and how does the ascendance of 5G play into this discussion? Okay, uh, so the, the other element uh, to China's grand strategy, and again, um, it's about the data. So as you deploy 5G, you're putting incredibly processing, uh, incredible processing power and data collection on the front end. So all of that data now that is on your 5G device, most of which today, or at least the infrastructure, is built by Chinese under uh, Huawei and uh, one other company that slips me now. Um, all of the data that is captured on the devices that runs on the Huawei infrastructure goes back to China. So now if you put all that data and apply that against artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can get great insights in how to target or market. Some of this is marketing, but it could easily be converted to targeting uh, solutions. And so uh, reliance on a Huawei infrastructure with their rapidly building globally uh, with the mandate that any of the data that resides on the network uh, on government request must be brought back to, uh, uh, to, to China and then could be subject to a whole host of exploitation. I'm not sure I understand why, but uh, we've had very little Western um, development of infrastructure uh, that accommodates 5G. And so that's why so many countries are relying on this uh, infrastructure and Huawei infrastructure uh, to move that data. Uh, I, I could only think of two companies that uh, have recently, uh, maybe not so recently, maybe I just discovered them, Qualcomm and uh, a Norwegian company that now slips my head also. Um, goodness gracious. Ericsson or Nokia maybe? Ericsson, Ericsson. So, um, so again, this is about the data. I'm going to have devices that's going to have incredible processing power. Uh, think about this. I'm going to be able to stream uh, movies on the front end on your uh, personal device, not just at home because you've got a robust uh, Wi-Fi network. So I'm going to be able to stream and move an awful lot of data. That data is going to be resident on the infrastructure built by Huawei and ZTE. That's the other company. And that data could go back to uh, China for exploitation. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning opportunities are, uh, are best if you have data to apply the AI and ML against. So now I have access to global data, uh, some of it your data, and you may think uh, China is not interested in, uh, in you, but they might be. 
uh, certainly if you give them a vector to get to some other target. So uh, until we build, uh, you know, I'm kind of, uh, the, the optimist in me thinks that uh, somewhere there's a secret program to build 7G and uh, when China rolls out 5G it will be obsolete and, and Qualcomm will go, well, here's 7G and we've, we've now leaped, leapt ahead of you. But I, I haven't heard of any such model. But without that infrastructure, uh, you put all your data at risk of going back to China. Thanks, General Stewart. I think that's incredibly useful. And I do think that's going to be one of the growth areas that we see where when we start getting around to infrastructure spending, when we get around to manufacturing repatriation, that we will see money put into those areas. There's clearly a, you know, a strategic reason from a national security standpoint, and it makes sense as those are kind of big themes that we've had in the macro space in terms of getting this fiscal stimulus, getting job creation, and repatriating some of the more sensitive production facilities back to the U.S. or countries that we are very comfortable with. So I think what you're saying will dovetail into that, and I think it's going to be an ongoing growth opportunity for the country. So I, I think, um, yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more, particularly if there is a Biden administration where you see a really uh, uh, heavy investment in infrastructure and, uh, and a renewed commitment to making sure that uh, we are connected globally and we bring the right partners together to solve uh, particularly this uh, advanced communication effort uh, and the data that resides on it. So infrastructure becomes uh, a very high priority, I believe, under a Biden administration. So, uh, so let me just uh, uh, do Russia very quickly. Uh, a, a revanchist Russia that sees themselves as a center of power not just in uh, Europe, uh, but a global uh, power, a superpower, should be dealt with on equal terms with the United States and China, not seen as just a regional power. They have probably the most sophisticated uh, cyber capability. Uh, again, going from the top, they have a grand strategy that they, uh, uh, is willing to uh, embrace uh, cyber as a, a, uh, a non-kinetic option. Uh, against any of the nation states to keep the to keep them at uh, at bay, uh, they have doctrine that supports this uh, effort. They've organized forces uh, to conduct cyberspace operations, and I do mean this in the fullest spectrum, uh, from the uh, reconnaissance all the way through destructive. Uh, and they have demonstrated a willingness to use it. Uh, there's clear evidence. Uh, I'm told that. Uh, uh, they're doing the same sort of reconnaissance in our critical infrastructure. Uh, those reconnaissance efforts uh, have, at times, uh, been destructive. Uh, and, uh, and so, from the top, they have a strategy for utilizing it. They have doctrine that's defined uh, for it. They've developed forces that uh, uh, execute mission, and they've demonstrated a willingness to use uh, cyberspace operations. Uh, they do tend to blend uh, government military capability with the private sector, their, their cyber militias. And so you sometimes, at least there's an attempt to, to suggest that it is not sponsored by the government, uh, uh, but it is by some private entity acting independently. There's clear evidence that they work in concert and, uh, and are willing to do some things 
that pushes the envelope on cyber operations, especially uh, the destructive portion. Uh, we have now a very focused effort uh, against uh, those type of operations. Uh, in the past, we would uh, see the operation, see the effects of the operation. We clean up and we'd wag our fingers and suggest that uh, they not do this in the future. Uh, part of the uh, persistent engagement idea was let's not uh, clean up on aisle six. Let's see how quickly or effectively we can uh, disrupt any operations that uh, particularly uh, the Russians would do. So uh, uh, very capable force, uh, very mature capability, uh, well established uh, and a demonstrated willingness to use it and we'll blend uh, private and public uh, to get after the targets. Uh, and I'll stop there on the Russian piece unless you want more. Uh, Revolutionary Iran, uh, again, um, uh, Iran, same thing. Um, developed a strategy, um, have written doctrine on how to use this uh, capability, uh, have built forces, uh, that will uh, execute operations have demonstrated a willingness to use uh, the, the capability. They've used it against other nation states and they've used it against uh, individual uh, U.S. citizen who uh, they disagreed with statements he made uh, relative to Iran and their, their role in the region. Uh, nascent capability not as mature as the other two, uh, Russia and China, but you don't have to be terribly mature to be destructive. Uh, the cost of entry in this space to deliver a destructive payload is, is, is pretty low. So uh, again, uh, uh, doctrine, forces, intent, demonstrated capability, uh, not nearly as sophisticated. They believe that they've been the victim of uh, cyber attacks in the past. And so they see this as a reasonable tool as, uh, as an instrument of power. Um, I fully, if there's probably a nation state that I think will take the greatest risk in this domain, uh, if, they end in a, if they end in some kind of uh, confrontation with the United States, it's probably Iran, and it probably would be against the financial sector of our country. Uh, they believe the financial sector is the key underpinning of our, uh, our power. And so you see Iran um, very, very interested in our financial sector from a cyber non-kinetic uh, effort. The awareness of how our adversaries um, attack the United States and our interests grows. How do you see policy changing around the United States' ability to address that? You discussed some of the forward-leaning capabilities uh, that we are now employing with the military depending on the outcome of this election, whether it's a Trump two or a Biden one, do you see that continuing to change, formalize, and maybe get more aggressive? Uh, I, think, I, th I think, though not explicitly stated, uh, the idea that if you do something against us in cyber, we'll do something against you in cyber uh, is, is, is probably not the policy. I think the policy is if you do cyber, uh, we we retain the right to do something kinetic. Uh, and uh, we, we may in fact do something in cyberspace that is destructive, uh, but the, 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 the policy basically today is we, we reserve the range of options if you do something against us in cyberspace that's destructive. Uh, 
what is what is what is challenging and it's the words that are still out there is a cyber incident of significant consequence and so we still haven't quite figured out what significant consequence is uh, so the significant consequence uh, that will drive do we just uh, wag our fingers or do we get after the target and that has been the great debate within the interagency uh, what what defines a significant uh, consequence and uh, uh, un until we kind of settle on that and this this might be one of those things that you'll recognize it uh, when it happens uh, you'll go okay goodness gracious the power is out in uh, city X and and traffic and deaths and uh, okay we, we now can attribute to someone and we'll go after them but uh, the, the policy is pretty broad at this point and I don't see it changing we'll respond in a manner and time of our choosing as opposed to cyber gets you cyber, kinetic gets you kinetic. So General Stewart, one of the things that come up a lot recently as people are talking about inflation, ways to deal with inflation, is where cryptocurrency can play a role. You mentioned it earlier in terms of ransomware. Many of the actors that you've talked about have been known players in cryptocurrency at the same time I know the IMF is working on helping some countries in digital currencies. You know, various large central banks are looking at that. Do you, where do you see this interplay between cyber and digital currencies and even Bitcoin? Yeah, the, the one area, you know, we, we often go to nation state, but we're seeing increased activity by criminals. Uh, criminals are coming after any one of us, even if we just give them 20 Bitcoins. Um, so uh, we've seen an increase. I, I want to say the number is in the 70% increase in criminal activity going after uh, uh, folks working from home and demanding a ransom uh, and corporations and demanding some sort of ransom in some cryptocurrency format. Uh, we generally see them asking for Bitcoin. Um, and uh, I, I think recently, uh, there was a, some guidance that said if you help to facilitate the movement of uh, Bitcoin uh, to pay a ransom, you're complicit in the crime and we may come after you. So insurance companies now are wrestling with, okay, my client has now come to me, the data has been locked, um, they want some help, uh, how do I move cryptocurrency to make this pain go away? And nobody has a really good answer, especially now that folks are saying you may be criminally liable for uh, 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 supporting this uh, activity. So we're going to see increasing demand for currency that's uh, immutable, untraceable in the cryptocurrency space, and uh, particularly from criminal activity. And again, uh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish criminal activity from nation state activity. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to North Korea. I believe North Korea uh, uses criminal entities to get uh, cryptocurrency uh, to, to bypass the sanctions uh, that are currently imposed against them. So uh, I don't know, Peter, if that answered your question, but... It definitely answers a lot of the questions. I think, it, you know, one, as you said, it makes it very unclear where people are supposed to head as they look for hedges against inflation, what is safe, what's a true growth asset, what maybe is, you know, more supported by criminal. I think you're very right on North Korea. One of the things I've been noticing in my work from a macro standpoint is you've often seen both with North Korea or you get escalation in Venezuela. You see the opposite reaction in cryptocurrencies, 
which you know some take, and I think one theory would be that when Venezuela faces sanctions, they release cryptocurrency to create funds and vice versa. So I think there's a lot of interplay between what's going on in the nation states, as you said, what's going on in the criminal sphere, and yet there's a lot of legitimate people looking at this as a potential hedge, some way to avoid inflation, central bank policies that maybe some people feel are too loose. Um, so I think it's going to be an ongoing area to look at. Um, it's certainly fascinating. General Stewart, before we close out, would love your take on how you view these risks as it relates to supply chains and specifically shipping and transportation. Yeah. Um, again, it comes down to uh, let, let me put it in warfighter context. If I'm conducting um, operations in the Pacific, and you can get into my network at Transportation Command uh, because I've got uh, 30 days of supply to execute the uh, campaign. And you can get into Transportation Command and manipulate the data that says instead of sending the ammunition ship to the Pacific, let's send it through the Panama Canal to hang out the coast of uh, Venezuela. And uh, if no one's paying any attention, uh, you can very quickly see uh, uh, your, your capability, your logistics capability in a warfighting environment transferred to a different theater far away from where you want to execute your mission. So if you can do that in a warfighting environment by getting into a transportation command and moving, then you certainly can do that in our supply chain. All of a sudden we have a crisis uh, in, uh, let's, let's just use the uh, pandemic. If a uh, large percentage of my personal protective equipment comes from a particular region, and I, you know, th this, this is again now thinking about how a, uh, a uh, malicious actor could use what we just learned in the pandemic. If I can move your supply to some other location and it costs you 14 days, and it, it doesn't have to cost you uh, a year, it costs you 14 days, the incubation period of a virus, and all of a sudden, you're not only seeing uh, the, the, the results, the death, but you're seeing the spread. Uh, I think in many cases, our, our supply chain is not just vulnerable in terms of where it's being developed, but how it might be moved. And uh, many of these uh, companies are not thinking about securing both the data and, uh, uh, and, and, and the movement, the operations of a vessel. Uh, so I think there's opportunities there to disrupt supply chain using cyber techniques coming in from an unclassified environment uh, to the data and coming in from a uh, unclassified or, or unsecured, uh, better term than unclassified, unsecured network into the operating system because sometimes maybe all I need to do is stop a vessel from moving. Thank you, General Stewart, Peter, and Rachel for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for giving us the time. If you would like to engage with Lieutenant General Stewart, Peter Chur, or any of our geopolitical and macro strategy experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. Currently, over 45% of Academy Security's workforce is comprised of military veterans with a goal to get to 50%. You can learn more about our firm by going to our website at academysecurities.com. Thank you again so much for your time. This is your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again 